trials, difficulties in our life give us patience, perseverance, which produce character in our lives and produce hope. All of that is made possible because we have the Holy Spirit in our lives who gives us, shows God's loves in, love in these situations, in these circumstances. I read this story. I wanted to read this to you. It says, many years ago, A.G. Gordon went to the World's Fair. From a distance, he saw a man pumping water with one of those old hand pumps. The water was pouring out. He said as he looked, the man is really pumping water. But when he got closer, he discovered that it was a wooden man connected to a pump powered by electricity. The man was not pumping the water. The water was pumping him. Have you ever felt like circumstances are pumping you? rather than you being in control of your circumstances. And that's really our message today, is that understanding God is in control of our circumstances. We're not under our circumstances. He's with us in our circumstances. And because of him, we can rise above them. And knowing that he has a purpose and a plan, and that plan is to produce patience, just like it said in Romans 5, which brings character, which gives us hope. That is what God is up to. So let's look at the last chapter of the book of Acts. We're going to pick up the story in verse 11 through verse 15. I'll read this section first. After three months, Paul says, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse, stayed there three days, From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up and on the following day we reached Petoliae. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there heard that we were coming and they traveled as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God And Paul was encouraged. If you want to put that map up there, this is the map of Paul's final journey. He's been on some missionary journeys. He's had three of them. And he's traveled a lot of miles. But this is Paul's free, government-funded Mediterranean cruise. How's that sound? This is the map of going from Caesarea where he was held and where he had been appearing and talking with people like Felix, Festus, King Agrippa. From there, he's going to be going to Rome to appeal to meet before Caesar, Nero himself. And so on that path in chapter 27, in the first part of chapter 28, there's a story of Paul on a ship along with 236 other individuals, some of them prisoners, some of them... Um, sailors who were in charge of getting the ship through the Mediterranean to Rome. And during that trip, as they traveled, a storm hit. And it talks about how for two weeks, for 14 days, they couldn't see the sun. They couldn't see the moon. Now, in those days, you used those things to travel. Those were your navigation tools. So for 14 days, there was this nor'easter wind that threatened to to batter the ship. But by God's grace and God's sovereignty, they were able to make it through. And in the story there in chapter 27, 
we see God's sovereignty. God's greater than storms. The natural storms, as well as storms that come up in our life unexpectedly. God is greater than error in human judgment. What had happened in chapter 27 is they had put out to sea in a season where you probably shouldn't be traveling. And Paul had even said to the commander of the ship, probably not a good idea to be sailing this time of year. Well, guess what? It wasn't. And they bore the consequences. But God was with them. He's sovereign in this. But we also see in Paul, we see this calmness. While other people are running around panicking, Paul is calm. He says, none of you are going to die. Not a hair on your head will be harmed because God is here with us. And he was able to be calm and he was able to take charge of the ship. What we see is Paul taking leadership, taking over the ship in a sense, because he understood that God was there. It's a very similar to me in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. A prisoner... A criminal in there in Egypt, but because of his character, because of his trust in God and God's hand on his life, he rises to a place of authority. And that's really what's going on in chapter 27. So verse 11 picks up on the Isle of Malta after three months of wintering and waiting until there was good passage. And so that's where we're, the story's picked up. And so they're going to take off from the Isle of Malta. It mentions three towns, Syracuse, which was on on the island of Sicily in Italy there. It's the soccer ball. Italy is the boot, right? Sicily is that soccer ball that's being kicked by the boot of Italy. And Syracuse is one of those cities. Then they come to Regium, which is on the toe of the boot of Italy. That's where that's located. They finally make the mainland of Italy Then they go up to Petuli, which is modern-day Naples, Italy. It's up north, about 130 miles south of Rome. They're making their way to Rome. And it says in verse 14, there in Petuli, that they meet up with brothers and sisters. These are Christian people in Italy. Now, you mean there's Christians there ahead of Paul? Yeah. What has happened is three years earlier, Paul had written the book of Romans to a group of believers who were there in Italy, Rome and other parts of Italy. People had come to Pentecost. They had heard the gospel. So some some of that influence had gone back with them after they returned from the day of Pentecost. But the gospel had gotten there. People had come to know Jesus Christ. There were brothers and sisters there. And so now as Paul is traveling, to Rome, he meets up with them. And it says the commander Julius allows Paul to stay one week with them. We don't know why that the commander of ship allowed them to to take a week here on their trip up to Rome, but he does. And it says that Paul was greatly encouraged. In Romans 1, verses 9 through 11, Paul says this to the Roman people. Again, this is three years earlier. He says, God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, he is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift 
to make you strong. Paul says, my desire, my heart, my mind, my prayers, they're all with you. I want to get there. I want to see you. Here it is. It's happening. He's on his way. And you can imagine how that felt. It says that Paul was encouraged by that, just being with his brothers and sisters. And what's interesting, and Luke, Luke says in verse 14, he says, we came to Rome. Wait a minute, Luke, you're about 130 miles south of Rome. What are you saying? What do you mean we came to Rome? I think Luke is so excited. Luke is anticipating the arrival so much that he says, we're there. It feels like we're already there. But they've got a little distance to go. In verse 15, it says, The people came from as far away as the Forum of Appius and a place called Three Taverns to meet them. Word had spread. People were excited. They wanted to talk to Paul. And so they're traveling to meet him. But they're on their way north from the port city all the way up to Rome. And Rome, Romans built good roads. We've talked about these in the book of Acts. There was the Aegean Way which was a road that went through portions of Turkey and Greece, kind of east-west route, several hundred miles long. This is the Appian Way, the road that led north and south from the port city up to Rome, and it was, it's still there today, portions of it, and it was well-built. And so you see Paul and, and Luke and the group of people with him, they're traveling north on this road, this beautiful place, and he's able to see them. Now we pick up the story. He's getting to Rome. He's finally going to get there. And you could just imagine how he feels in his heart. Because this is what Jesus had told him would happen. In Acts 23.11, it says, As Jesus stood by Paul, he was in prison here. He had to be taken away from the Jews because they were mobbing him. And they put him in the barracks there. And it says that Jesus stood by his side and he said to Paul, just as you testified of me in Jerusalem, someday you're going to testify of me in the city of Rome. And here it is. That prophecy, that promise that Jesus had made to him is coming true. So let's pick up the story in verse 16 of Paul in Rome. It says, when he, we got to Rome, so we, we're, we're there now. They're in the actual city. Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem, handed over to the Romans. He's recapping a period of over two to three years now of when he had been captured there in Jerusalem, handed over to the Romans. He said, they examined me, wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I've asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there have reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking about this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. 
He witnessed to them from morning until evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed amongst themselves, and they began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, and here he quotes Isaiah chapter 6. Go to this people and say, you will ever be hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people, their heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, They might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Paul has the opportunity to share the gospel in Rome. Now, verse 16 tells of his situation there. It says he was, in verse 16... He was allowed to live by himself with a soldier attached to him, to guard him. And then in verse, down in verse 30, it tells us this, it was a rented, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who came to see him. So here's the situation. He's in a rented house. He has a guard chained to him, one, and people can come and go. He can visit with people, they can come and say hi, um, so there's, a, there's some freedom there, but yet he's still a prisoner in a sense. He has one soldier chained to him rather than a host of soldiers. Now, in the Western text, we don't have this in the story here, but we know from history that the remainder of the prisoners that were on that ship with Paul coming from Caesarea up to Rome, the rest of them were taken off to a prison with several prison guards in charge of them. Uh, it was a fortress in the Roman barracks. And so their situation was very different. They had a lot less freedom than Paul did because he was not really a criminal at this point. He had appealed to Caesar and he was on his way. Philippians 1 verses 12 to 14 talks about this situation. It says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He says, Paul says, this house arrest has actually worked out well. The Christians have come, brothers and sisters have come, I've been able to encourage them, and they've actually grown in their faith and in their confidence to share. It's a good thing. In his commentary, R.C. Sproul tells this story in relationship to Paul's house arrest. He says, the closest thing I have witnessed to a house arrest occurred while I was teaching at Gordon-Conwell Seminary during the administration of President Gerald Ford. Ford's son was enrolled in the seminary preparing for the ministry. Although he was the son of the President of the United States, most of the time he felt like a prisoner. Everywhere he went, he was accompanied by two members of the Secret Service. 
When he arrived at my class, which was held in a large amphitheater, the Secret Service agents escorted him to his chair and then went out of the room to stand guard by the doors. Sometime about the third day of lectures, the Secret Service agents no longer waited outside the doors but remained in the room to listen to the lecture. They began taking notes, continued to do so for the duration of the course. The agents seemed to have been influenced by him while he was under their protection so that they had taken an interest in the things of God. In the same way, I cannot help but wonder what happened to those guards who were with Paul day and night during his two years of house arrest in Rome. Basically, the way it worked was there'd be a guard, they'd be on duty for four hours, and then they would change shifts and another guard would come in. So in the period of 24 hours, there would probably be maybe up to six different guards in charge of making sure that Paul was remained there. And so you can imagine, talked about, you know, talk about captive audience, imagine being chained to Paul, probably the world's greatest evangelist, right? And it's like, oh, really? And there's like four hours, could this go quick enough? But in that process, in that time, I'm sure they heard the gospel. And maybe, in fact, I would say likely, some of them maybe came to faith in the Lord. Um, but I love in verse 17 through 22, he makes the best of this opportunity. It says, Paul invites the Jewish leaders to come and hear him. Now, what's different about this situation than what's been happening in the prior chapters is Paul wasn't able to go into the synagogues like before. When he'd come into a city, the first thing he would do is connect with the Jewish people in that city, go to the synagogues, and talk about Jesus there. Also, what's been going on is they have been attempting to take his life, basically, and in an effort to defend himself, he has been sharing his story, talking about Jesus, more out of a, defensively. Now, he's going on the offense. Um, he's not able to visit the synagogues, so he invites them to come where he is, at this house. It's Paul's pattern, he says in Romans 1.16, he says, the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God under salvation for everyone who believes, Jews first, then to the Gentiles. And that's the way Paul lived. Paul never gives up on his people, the Jews, regardless. I mean, they have been putting him through a lot of things. They have been his worst enemy these last several years. But Paul's heart remains with them. Romans 9, verses 1 through 3 says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. He said, if, if I could, I would go to hell. I would be cut off from Christ if I knew that my people would come to know him and experience eternal life. That's how devoted Paul was to his people, the Jews. He didn't give up on them. And I think today, as Christians living in here in America, I want to say the same thing to us. Don't give up on our people. Don't give up. It's frustrating. And yeah, there's going to be times where we're persecuted by them. And there's going to be times where they tell us to take a hike. And they don't want to listen to what we say. 
But I wanna say, please don't give up on our people. I came across this article and I just wanted to share it because it kind of fits in with the book of Acts a little bit. But the article title actually caught my attention and here it is. It says, Atheists in Praise of Christianity? Question mark. Atheists in Praise of Christianity? Question mark. The author is Jonathan Van Maren and he has a blog post that he writes. He is a believer, but here's what he says. Historian Tom Holland is known primarily as a storyteller of the ancient world. Thus, his newest book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, came as something of a surprise for several reasons. First, Tom Holland is not a Christian. Second, Holland's book is one of the most ambitious historical defenses of Christianity in a very long time. While studying the ancient world, Holland writes, he realized something. Simply, the ancients were cruel, their values utterly foreign to him. The Spartans routinely murdered imperfect children. The bodies of slaves were treated like outlets for the physical pleasure of those with power. Infanticide was common. The poor and the weak had no rights. How did we get from there to here? It was Christianity, Holland writes. Christianity revolutionized sex and marriage, demanding that men control themselves, prohibiting all forms of rape. Christianity confines sexuality within monogamy. It is ironic, Colin notes, that these are now the very standards for which Christianity is derided in our culture today. Christianity elevated women. In short, Christianity utterly transformed the world. In fact, Holland points out that without Christianity, the Western world would not exist. Even the claims of the social justice warriors who despise the faith of their ancestors rest on a foundation of Judeo-Christian values. Those who make arguments based on love, tolerance, compassion are borrowing fundamentally Christian arguments. If the West had not become Christian, Holland writes, no one would have gotten woke. Holland's passionate defense of Christianity is fascinating because it, hap- it appears to be part of a trend. As the West becomes definitively post-Christian, many secularists are suddenly realizing that Christianity may have been more valuable than they thought. While many, including Holland, cannot quite bring themselves to believe Christianity is true, they're starting to believe that Christianity may be necessary. The phenomenon of atheists praising Christianity appears to be growing. Gone are the days when Christopher Hitchens and his fellow secularists raged against the poison of religion. Even Richard Dawkins has now admitted that Christianity might be preferable to the alternatives. How's that? He once called for Christianity to be destroyed. Now he begrudgingly says it has good effects on society, it's a good thing. The late Sir Roger Scruton too, headed back to church. He struggled with many of Christianity's truth claims, but still he came to believe that Christianity was necessary. While nursing doubts, he played the organ in his local Anglican church during Sunday services. Perhaps practice, he once said, would help him along. He wasn't sure he could believe it all, but he wanted to. These men are like King Agrippa, Interesting, we just went through that the last couple weeks. 
as King Agrippa told the Apostle Paul, you almost persuaded me to believe, Paul. You almost persuaded me. They almost believe it. They believe Christianity is good. Some believe it is even necessary. As Murray put it, he believes in belief. But they cannot yet bring themselves to believe that it is literally true that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. See where it's going there is this. And I mentioned this a few weeks back. In the secular mind, truth is maybe the last step. They need to understand, is it valuable? Does it work? They gotta see that first. Then, is it believable? Then is it true? And it kinda goes in that order. And that's kind of what we're seeing here. Don't give up on people. God is at work in people's hearts, just like he was working on King Agrippa, stirring his conscience, bringing him along in, in that line of believing. Don't give up. Paul says, I want to talk to you about this hope of Israel. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the promise of resurrection. He's talking about a kingdom where God would reign, where there would be peace. All those things are common ground that he would have with his Israelite brothers. They all were looking for that. They just had, were looking in different directions for it. And then they said to him in verse 21, we, haven't, we don't know about you. We haven't received these letters from Judea. Probably what has happened because of the winter storm season that Paul had just gone through on his travels, quite possibly a representative or the letters, the documents had not arrived there yet. And so they were uncertain as to what is the full story here. We haven't heard of you, Paul. Or maybe the Jews back in Jerusalem, they just kind of given up, realizing they really don't have a case. And if they can't prove the case in Jerusalem and in Caesarea, they certainly won't be able to prove it in Rome, in a Roman court. So maybe that's going on. But verse 22 says, Paul had a willing audience. They wanted to hear. Imagine how that felt to Paul. For maybe the first time in a long time, he has a group of people that really want to hear what he has to say. So it says he went from morning until evening. He took advantage of it. He took the whole day, starting early on, and went into the hours of the evening. And he had two themes in his sermon. It doesn't go into a lot of detail here, but there are two themes that appeared in his sermon. Number one, the kingdom of God. He spoke about that. This is really the theme that connects Old Testament and New Testament, that flows from the beginning all the way up through, all the way into eternity. This idea that God is sovereign over all. God has sent his king, Jesus Christ, to rule over his kingdom. This is the fulfillment of God's saving plans and his purposes for his people, starting with Jews, going on to people of all the world. He says, it started with Jesus, it's kicked off. It's now, but it's not yet, all of it, but it's here. This is something to get excited about. This is something that we've been hoping for. So he spent time talking about the kingdom of God. And then it says, he, talk, he took the law of Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, and he's talked to them and persuaded them about Jesus. 
This is like a biblical theology class. It's like what Jesus did with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We're beginning back in Genesis. This is the story and how Jesus is the theme. Jesus is the direction that all of that is pointing. He's the reason all of that happened. And can you imagine listening to this? That would have been a great class to take. But he takes their scriptures, the Old Testament, and shows Jesus. Verse 24 kind of summarizes it and says, the gospel, some believed, a few believed, but most didn't. And there was disagreement amongst them. In fact, verse 29, which isn't in the NIV, um, some manuscripts have it. Here's what verse 29 says. It says, they left arguing vigorously among themselves. They can't agree on this idea of who is Jesus. And then he quotes Isaiah 6. And just like Isaiah, after Isaiah received his commission, he said, in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the throne room of God. He sees the Lord high and exalted. And there's a commissioning service there. Isaiah, I want you to go and speak to the people of Israel back there in Isaiah 6. And this is what God said to Isaiah about the people then. I know that Jesus had this in mind because in the book of Matthew and John, Jesus uses the same exact passage, Isaiah 6, in reference and as, as he's speaking to the people of Israel. And now Paul is tying it in here. This idea that even though you have ears, you're not hearing. Even though you have eyes, you can't see. And the real problem sits in your heart. Your heart is hardened. It's calloused. It's a refusal to accept. It's a refusal to to believe that's really what's going on because if you did really see if you really could hear then your heart would accept what I'm saying and that's the reality when anyone hears the word of God it either takes you to a place of repentance and salvation or a place of hardened heart and sin and that's what's going on here the Jews are going to reject the message but here's the good news the Gentiles are going to receive it and that's been God's plan all along hasn't it God's plan he knew this it wasn't a surprise it this hasn't stopped God's plan at all but the Gentiles are going to be grafted in they're going to be included into this and they're going to listen Paul says unlike you they're going to pay attention how's that now, if you're a Jew sitting there listening to that, I'm sure that didn't go over very big. Um, that somehow these Gentiles are, are more open to the gospel than you are. I'm sure they didn't like that. The last two verses of Acts 28, I'm going to close with these. And here's how the whole book comes to a close. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. He taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We're going to see the final verses here that Acts ends as an unfinished story and an unending story. It's unfinished. It says two whole years he was left there in that house. This is the second time where Paul was left for two years as a prisoner 
at the end of chapter 24 after Felix. He had been left for two whole years. Again, here he is again. The wheels of justice are turning slowly here in Rome, just like they did earlier in Caesarea. Probably what's going on is they're putting in their case together, waiting for documents to arrive. He's probably in a waiting list of people wanting to appear and appeal to Caesar. But for two whole years, this is not wasted time. What happens during these two years? Well, we know that Paul writes four books. They're called the prison epistles in our scripture. The book of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those four books are written during this period of time while he is imprisoned in Rome, his first imprisonment in Rome. People are coming to know Christ. We see that in his epistles. He mentions names of people, some of them even in Caesar's household who have come to faith in Christ. We know that Philemon, which the book is named after, comes to know Christ. Philemon, excuse me, Onesimus comes to know Christ. Onesimus is a slave that ends up there with Paul. Paul leads him to Christ, and he writes a book back to the owner, Philemon. So things are happening. It is the end of the book. Luke brings this book to a close, Acts 1.8. The gospel's gonna go out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. It's gone there. So in one, ends, one point, it's, it is the end of the book, but it's not really, because this isn't the end of Paul. What about, what happens to Paul? Luke doesn't tell us. He leaves us hanging here a little bit. Mark mentioned this last week. Imagine reading a book that's just leading you along. It's a great story, and you get to the end of the book, and it just stops short. I was reading a book recently. I mentioned it a few weeks back called Shadow Divers. It was a story of these two divers that found a German U-boat off the coast of New Jersey. Now, what's interesting is there are no maps and no record of any U-boat sinking off the coast of New Jersey. There were in other places along the coast, eastern coast, but this one, there was no record of it. So they found it, and then it's a great book. It's a great read about identifying the sub. Which one is it? How did it get there? What's the story? And the good thing is this book took you to the end and gave you the answer to all those questions. I feel like Luke here leaves us short a little bit. Well, we know from history what happened to Paul. His life continues on for about four to five years more after this from church history. He was released by Nero because there really wasn't any case here. That had become evident. It's very possible that he traveled to, to as far west as Spain. Now, First Clement, the earliest Christian writing outside the New Testament says that Paul preached in the limits of the west. So it's quite possible he made it all the way to the Atlantic coast. We don't know for sure, but it is possible. We know that he visited some of the churches that he had started on his missionary journeys. He encouraged the believers. He wrote pastoral epistles to Titus and Timothy. But we also know that he was imprisoned again by Nero. See, Nero, early on, was, he was in favor. He had no problem with Christians. Um, things were good. But then in AD 64, there was a fire in Rome, and it says Nero blamed the Christians for it. And it was really, that was the point where Nero turned. He became a different person, started persecuting the church. 
So Paul was imprisoned again in the Mamertine prison. You can go to Rome today and see this place. It was really a dungeon. This was a prison in the sense that we think of. This was not house arrest anymore where people could come and go. This was a prison. And it was there that Paul met his death by beheading. And Peter also was martyred there in the Mamertine prison, crucified upside down according to history. Here's the principle that I want us to hear today. God can use a government that is amiable to the church and God can use a government that is antagonistic towards the church. I think in this season of COVID-19, I think there's a sense out there amongst some Christians of fear, of suspicion, of conspiracy that the government is somehow out to get us. And I hear that from Christians. And I, I want you all to hear we don't need to fear the government. Read Romans 13. Because Paul says if you do what's right, if you trust God and live a life that honors him, there's no reason to fear the government. Why? Because God has instituted them. God has put them in place over you in your life as your authority. You don't have to fear them. On the other hand, I would say this. We don't need to depend upon them for everything either. They're not gonna solve all of our problems. As Christians, we know that to be the case. So you can argue on both sides of that. You know, conspiracy theories are just that. They're theories. <laughs> I believe that Elvis really is dead. I believe that man really did walk on the moon. I believe that there, you know, I believe that there are no aliens. I don't believe in Bigfoot, quite honestly. Now, where that puts you, I don't know, but these are theories. They're interesting to talk about, but I would rather focus on what I know to be true, which is God's word, rather than spend my time, my energy, and my concern about things that could be true. So, all I want to say to you is that God can use whatever form of government that we find ourselves under at any time. Right now, we have a government that's relatively amiable to us. We have a lot of freedoms. Granted, we've lost a few over the years, but the reality is maybe as we move forward, there's gonna be a government that's very much antagonistic toward us. You know what? God can still work in that. Now we can stand up and say what's right, and we can speak truth, and we can stand for God's word, and we will do that. But don't fear the government. We don't need to. It's an unfinished story, but it's an unending story. Verse 31, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. He taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness, without hindrance. Paul's chain, the gospel is not. It's still going out. The abrupt ending of the book of Acts leaves us with the challenge and opportunity to allow the Spirit to write the next chapter in the book of Acts today in and through you and me. We are Acts 29. This book didn't end here in, verse, in chapter 28. It's still going on. So think about that. Acts of the Apostles really should be retitled Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ at Work by the Holy Spirit through the Apostles and His Church. It's going on. It continues to go on. That's you and me today. Nothing can hinder us from sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's continue to share his story. Let's be Acts 29. So where does this story end? Here's where it ends. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14, he says, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world. That's the story of Acts, isn't it? As a 
as a testimony to all nations. And then, then the end will come. Let's keep sharing the word of God. Let's do it boldly. Let's do it without hindrance. Let's get it out there, knowing that that is our calling. We're not under circumstances anymore. God is with us in our circumstances, and we can rise above them. Amen?